Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Jim O'Brien, author of Looking Up, From the ABA to the NBA, the WNBA to the NCAA. Jim O'Brien, author of Looking Up, From the ABA to the NBA, the WNBA to the NCAA, a basketball memoir. You are, as it says on the cover of the book, a member of the U.S. Basketball Writers Hall of Fame. How long have you been writing about basketball? A lot of people don't realize uh, that I wrote so much about basketball. The same was true with my earlier book, From A to Z, about boxing. But I purposely covered all sports, even alligator wrestling. And when I was in Miami, I lie. I covered all sports because you never know where you're going to find the best story. I stayed away from horse racing because I never thought that any horses outside of Mr. Ed would be a good interview. But I made a mistake because the people in the barns and the people, the owners and the trainers and jockeys, you can get good stories. And that's what I was always seeking, the good story. And there were a lot of them in basketball because uh, basketball in, that, in those days with the ABA and the NBA had a lot of characters. Were you a basketball fan growing up? Yes, but I wasn't growing up very much. And so it was strange that I was such a basketball fan because I was the smallest kid on my street on Sunnyside Street in the inner city of Pittsburgh, but I put up a hoop on a pole, and, I, and it was actually a complicated uh, deal. And uh, it was great. You could actually dribble under it and do with layups and so forth because it extended off from the pole. I had the lights up in my parents' bedroom window. I'm not so sure they were thrilled about that. But it was great until some moving truck uh, hit it one day and knocked on my basketball hoop. And I used to practice Will Chamberlain's fingertip roll shot because he was my hero. He was 7'1", seven, 7'2", seven, and I would get a ball and I would let it roll off my fingertips. And that was great if you were 7'2", but if you were 5'2", <laughs> it wasn't a very effective shot. But I, you know, I, I still wonder at the fact that here I was, this, this kid that collected all kind of sports magazines. I had them on my nightstand and read about these people in the mid-50s that someday I would befriend them. I would not just interview them, but I would befriend them, such as Bill Sharman and Will Chamberlain and, and people like that. So uh, my dreams came true. I didn't want to be a basketball player. I was smart enough to recognize my shortcomings. And I didn't want to be a ball player of any kind. I liked playing sports. I still play sports. I'm 75 years old, and I still like to exercise and so forth and I watch so much sports on television and I read about it and um, I'm the John Feinstein of Pittsburgh I, I read all his books he does such a wonderful job and uh, I enjoyed this basketball book because it reminded me of how lucky I was as a young man to spend time in the company of the people that I was with well growing up in Pittsburgh you didn't have an NBA team to root no. for who'd you root for Rooted for the Rochester Royals. You'll like that. Mm -hmm. 
they had a lot of people that had a Pittsburgh connection on that team. And once upon a time, I think the Rochester Royals are now the Sacramento Kings or something odd like that. But um, they had Cy Green, who played at Duquesne University. They had Dick Ricketts, who played at Duquesne University. And those two players, by the way, even today, are the, uh, the only players from one school to be the number one pick in the NBA draft in consecutive years, Dick Ricketts and then Cy Green. They had Jack Twyman from Pittsburgh, who was, had played at the University of Cincinnati, was one of the leading scorers in the NBA, and he had gone to high school in Pittsburgh and was a local native. They had Dave Piontek, who was from Pittsburgh. And uh, they had uh, Maurice Stokes. Maurice Stokes had went to a public school in Pittsburgh, Westinghouse High School, and he went to St. Francis of Loretto. He should have gone to Duquesne, he should have gone to Pitt, but one of the points that I make in my book, Looking Up, is that in those days, in the mid-50s, late-50s, schools had quotas for black players. They would only uh, recruit so many in a particular year. There were maybe three at the most. They couldn't play more than three at a time on the floor. And one of the, uh, the Catholic schools, Catholic colleges were the first to embrace black players. And thus, they were the best basketball teams of their day. Thus, you have San Francisco with Bill Russell and Casey Jones. Uh, winning two national championships under Phil Wolpert. But there's a story that, that someone told me when I was working on a book, something that I did not know when I sat down to write it. But uh, Niagara University, their coach had, had a weekend where he had Calvin Murphy, he had Bob Lanier, and he had uh, Jim McDaniels, a seven-footer from Kentucky. They were all there the same weekend, and they all wanted to come to Niagara University. The coach was doing flip-flops. He was so happy. He went to the school president. Niagara is a Catholic university. He's telling about these three outstanding recruits that are all coming to Niagara. And the president looked at him and said, no, pick one, pick one. And as, when I heard that, I thought of the movie and the book, Sophie's Choice which was much more demanding when you have to decide whether you're going to give up your little boy or your little girl. And uh, I'm sure the coach felt that way because they all turned out to be All-America players and they could have been on the same team. Well, you also write about Chuck Cooper. He was a trailblazer in the NBA and in business circles in Pittsburgh. And you say when the Celtics chose Cooper as a 14th player in the 1950 draft, one of the NBA owners said to the Celtics owner, Walter Brown, you know he's colored, don't you? Do you really want to draft him? How late in, in time was that mentality in the NBA? Late 50s. The NBA was still a new league. And uh, breaking the, uh, the color line wasn't as big as it was in 1947 when it happened in baseball. But because the NBA was not an established professional league, there was still a lot of barnstorming. There were still franchises such as Rochester, New York, and Fort Wayne, Indiana, and they were still finding their way. So th that could happen, but Chuck Cooper, uh, who went to Duquesne University, just like Cy Green and Dick Ricketts, and that's when Duquesne was one of the powers in college basketball. But, uh, and they could, have had Maurice, they could have had Maurice Stokes playing with the Ricketts. Uh, they could have had Jack Twyman there at that time. They were all recruited by Duquesne, but for one reason or another, they didn't go there. Pitt could have had Maurice Stokes, but he was black. And, and one of his teammates in high school was Ed Fleming, wonderful guy. He ended up going to Niagara University. 
And uh, I think that's one of the, the interesting aspects of looking up is to, to deal with that subject of what was going on in, in basketball. There's a story in there that I call The Real Dr. J. And that's um, Fletcher Johnson, who also went to Duquesne University. But he was the sixth man, and he was the sixth man merely because he was black. His father had worked in a printing plant in Patterson, New Jersey. He was a bright guy, and he was channeled into cupcake courses at Duquesne just to make sure he'd be eligible so they did what they would do with athletes and give them easier classes. Well, they were dealing with the wrong guy because Fletcher Johnson was a bright individual. But he couldn't start. He was known as the best sixth man in college basketball at the time. And I met him up at Cutcher's Country Club in the Catskill Mountains, which is the first place that I met Will Chamberlain. And it was a visitor to my hotel room, a surprise visitor, and made my day. But Fletcher Johnson, get this, when he graduated from Duquesne, he was in ROTC, R-O-T-C. So he went to the military as an officer, and then he went, ended up in, in Europe. He went to pharmacy school in Cologne, where he took the classes uh, in uh, French, I believe. And then he, he uh, went, no, he took those in Spanish. Then he went to medical school in France and took those classes in French. Can you imagine? So he had to be a bright guy. And then he ended up as a heart surgeon in New York City. And you would think somebody with huge hands as he had, because he could play for the Harlem Globetrotters at that time, You'd think it would be invasive to have him do heart surgery. Well, he had these long fingers, and he could do stitches without putting you know, his fist into your chest, so to speak. So he was in demand. But I knew Dr. J, Julius Irving. But to me, the real Dr. J is Fletcher Johnson. Uh, Maury Stokes' career was cut short, wasn't it? Well, what he happened? played for the uh, Rochester Royals, who became the Cincinnati Royals. And uh, he was playing late in the season. And he took a bad fall in a game and struck his head. And he didn't play the last couple of games. He passed out. He passed out. And he ended up with a stroke. He ended up in a hospital in Cincinnati. Uh, he was disabled. And Jack Twyman from Pittsburgh, who didn't, wasn't really a buddy of his or wasn't a friend. In fact, uh, working on the book, I found out that Stokes actually wasn't fond of Twyman because he thought Twyman was a gunner and thus he had fewer shot opportunities on that team because of Twyman. But Twyman one year finished over with over a 30 point scoring average and was second only to a new fellow from Kansas, the University of Kansas via the Harlem Globetrotters and that was my boy Will Chamberlain, the, my hero. So uh, Chamberlain uh, Chamberlain always came to the Stokes Memorial Game at Cutcher's uh, where they raised money to pay for the hospital care for Stokes. He'd never played again. He was in a wheelchair, and uh, they would have an, this annual All-Star Game at Cutcher's Country Club in the Catskill Mountains, which was known as the Borscht Belt. It was a very popular getaway for the Jewish community of New York City, and they had this basketball game every summer to uh, raised funds, and, and Chamberlain never missed a game. And a friend of mine, Jim Bukata, who later became the public relations director of the ABA, he knew I loved Chamberlain. And unbeknownst to me, one day at, at this place where Chamberlain had once been a bellboy when he was in high school, because they, they solicited 
basketball talent to come there. The, the owner loved basketball and so forth. So uh, I'm in my room going through some notes, and there's a knock at the door, and I open the door, and there's Will Chamberlain standing in the doorway, and he had a duck to come in, and he said, I understand you, you're a fan of mine. And I'll tell you, that was pretty good. Um, one time I was in a hotel room in New Orleans, and uh, I was traveling with the New York Knicks, and uh, they had a championship caliber team at the time. And I was in my room at the hotel directly across the street from the Superdome. And I was having shrimp cocktail, I had a, a, some soda, I had uh, a good meal. I was watching one of my all-time favorite movies, which has a little basketball in it, and that's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson, and he played with that Indian gentleman, who, the chief, and they ended up calling uh, Robert Parrish of the Celtics the chief after that because he was their big man. So I'm there, and all of a sudden it, it dawned on me, yeah, this is pretty good, this is a, this is a great life. So I went down the hall and knocked on the door of Red Holzman, the coach of the Knicks, and I rapped on the door, and his, his associate answered the door kind of like uh, Igor in Young Frankenstein, you know, what, what do you want, you know, bent over. And I said, I want to see Red. And I walked in, and I said, Red, I told him what I was doing and everything, and I said, this is great. And he looks at me and he said, Jim, this would be a great life if it weren't for the blankety-blank games. <laughs> and he was right about that. That night in the Superdome, Pete Maravich, who was born in a hospital in western Pennsylvania in Aliquippa, he scored 68 points that night against the Knicks, against Walt Frazier and Earl Monroe and Tiki Burden, all known and reputed to be some of the greatest guards in the game. 68 points, no three-point shot. One of the greatest games ever. His dad was there that night. I saw his dad, his attorneys from Aliquippa and Pittsburgh were there, and it was like a perfect storm. And, and I didn't feel bad about the Knicks losing that night because <laughs> I had seen one of the greatest individual performances in the history of basketball. Well, you mentioned the ABA, and I want to ask you about that because your book starts off with that, from the ABA to the NBA. When did you start covering the ABA, the American Basketball Association? Well, actually, I had seen Connie Hawkins play in the ABL, which was the American Basketball League. There's, a, there's earlier days. I mean, I didn't see, for instance, that Pittsburgh had a team in a league that preceded the NBA, and Press Maravich was on that team. It was called the Pittsburgh Ironmen. So Press had a Pittsburgh background. He was even talking about sending Pete to play at the University of Pittsburgh, where he had friends on the staff. But then he decided that I'm going to have a new job at LSU in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm taking him for myself, <laughs> which is what he did. But the ABA was, was great because uh, I was in Miami. No, actually, I started out with my association with the team in Pittsburgh. The owner, Gabe Rubin, called me one day, and he said, I, Hey, kid, I understand you know a lot about basketball. I said, Well, more than the average bear. He said, I need your help. And I went down to his hotel room in the inner city of Pittsburgh and actually helped him get organized. The Pittsburgh Pipers uh, took some of their prospects on tours of the University of Pittsburgh campus because they wanted to go to grad school. That was Craig Raymond, a six foot 11 player from BYU. He ended up not signing with the, with the Pipers. But the Pipers put together a championship team that first year. And, uh, they won the championship. Hawkins was the most valuable player in the league. 
He had been banned from the NBA because of a, uh, an assertion that it was not true that he had been involved with gambling and point-shaving scandals. And He was from Pittsburgh? No, he was from Brooklyn. He was from Bedford-Stuyvesant, same community as Cayuga Green. So uh, they, they came to Pittsburgh. They became adopted sons here, really. Uh, and I was the one that put together the uh, profile and the, and the endorsements from other players and coaches that got Connie Hawkins into the Pro Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. He told my daughter, uh, Sarah, one time when he met her when she was a young girl, and he said, uh, your dad is the best little white dude I know. <laughs> so that was a high compliment. So I owed him something to get him into the Hall of Fame. So the first year of the a a ABA, how did they, where did they get the players? Well, there were all, first of all, the NBA only had eight teams at the time. So there was a lot of talent. I mean, there were a lot of schools, just as there are today, playing Division I basketball. And the ABA was, was a league full of characters because some of the players had played in the NBA, but for one reason or another were pushed out. Uh, I mentioned Connie Hawkins. Well, his, his buddy from also from uh, New York City, Roger Bryan, was implicated in that same scandal and barred from the NBA. He was working in an auto plant in Dayton, Ohio, whenever Mike Storen, the general manager of the newly found Indiana Pacers, brought him in and signed him to a contract. I saw him score 60-some points in a game against the Los Angeles Stars in Anaheim, California. And it was in Anaheim, California because the arena wasn't available to the Stars that night. There was a circus or something. So I saw that game. I saw Elgin Baylor have some great games and saw the game in New York. I was only in my first year in New York, and it's shown on television a lot. Whenever the Knicks beat the Lakers in the seventh game of the uh, series, and Wilt Chamberlain was going against Willis Reed, and they didn't even know if Reed would be able to play because he had a hip injury that was limiting his mobility. And uh, the floor at Madison Square Garden was about this much off the regular floor, the playing floor. So when Reed came out, I had one of the best seats in the house, press table at courtside where the players came through to and from the locker room. And Reed pushes off my shoulder to get up onto the court. That's how uh, limited he was that night. But he came on the floor. The first two times he touched the ball, he did fadeaway jump shots and made them both and never scored another point and didn't play that much. Walt Frazier took over the game and they, Wilt was stunned. Wilt should have taken the ball to Reed because he was limited, but I think it was like seeing a ghost. And, uh, but that was, that was a high, one of the highlights. Going to Madison Square Garden when every night there were 18,000 people in the building and there was such a buzz and such electricity. And again, to show you about things changing through the years, I mentioned that I had the best seat in the house. Our newspaper, the New York Post, which was one of the first newspapers in America to cover NBA teams on the road. Our boss, Ike Gallus, and Paul Santa, managing editor, loved basketball. And so they, didn't, they would spend money to cover it. And I came to New York from Miami, and I was one of four writers who traveled with the Knicks in the playoffs that year, right off the bat. What a wonderful way to come to New York. And the Mets had just won the World Series in 69, the Miracle Mets. And the Jets of Joe Namath had won the, I guarantee, third Super Bowl. So 
New York was a happening place at the time. And for a sports writer, the thing that was great about New York was there were at least two teams in every sport. So I'm covering the Knicks at times. I wasn't the full-time writer. And I'm covering Dr. J and Rick Barry with the New York Nets. And I'm covering the Islanders who started to put together the team that ended up winning five Stanley Cups. So it was a great place to be. Well, when you were in Pittsburgh with the, the ABA team, did you work for them? Well, it was sort of an, a, a freelance deal for a while. I helped them get organized, and then I took the job in Miami covering the Miami Dolphins. Was the ABA uh, well-funded when they got started? No. In fact, some of the players today, they figured this out and they've told me about it, but there was a player with the Indiana Pacers two years ago, and they figured out that he made more money in 23 games than the whole staff of the Indiana Pacers, the trainer, the equipment man, and the players, and the front office, and everything else made back in 1967, 68. Uh, you see the NBA games today, and no matter where you see it, the, the, the stands are full of people. And those seats where I used to sit at courtside with the best seat in the house, writers don't get to sit there anymore. Those seats are sold for about $1,000 a game to the likes of Jack Nicholson and Spike Lee and uh, well, what kind of, what Dustin kind of, Hoffman used to go to the games and, and uh, uh, Woody Allen used to go to the games. What kind of crowds did the ABA teams draw? Oh, they'd have about 3,000, 4,000. But the Pittsburgh Pipers, who had hardly anybody all year long, the final game, the seventh game against the New Orleans Buccaneers with Larry Brown, who went on to a great coaching career. He was 5'9", the smallest player in the ABA. Doug Moe was on that team, Red Robbins, Gerald Gogo Govan. They had a great collection of players. They played against the uh, Pipers, and they lost that seventh game. And the place at the Civic Arena, which seated about 9,500 then, was filled. And then the next year they moved. Why'd they move? Don't ask me. It's one question I can't answer. They moved to Minneapolis-St. Paul, a, a city that had been abandoned by the uh, – Minnesota Muskies, they moved to Miami, which was also a bad move. And the uh, Pipers go to uh, Minneapolis, and then a year later, without Hawkins, who now was admitted to the NBA, without Hawkins, they came back as the Pittsburgh Condors. I was just at the aviary in Pittsburgh recently, and they have a couple condors there. Ugliest birds you've ever seen. And, of course, uh, in many places, they're extinct, and so are the Pittsburgh condors. <laughs> the uh, ABA had a couple of innovations, which you talk about, a red, white, and blue ball, and uh, the three-point play, and the slam dunk contest. Well, one of the people who helped the ABA get started was Abe Saperstein. And he was the guy who had the, the uh, Harlem Globetrotters. But he also had founded the American Basketball League, which had preceded the ABA. So he, they, had, they had the ball. They had a three-point play. He got Bill Sharman, who was the coach of the Cleveland Pipers, also Pipers. He got him to, tr to test the three-point play. And Sharman, initially, they had it out too far. And he said it wouldn't be a factor. So what they decided, it was supposed to be 25 feet from the, to, from the line to the basket. So what they did was instead of using the front of the basket for 25 feet, they used the back of the basket for 25 feet. But you mentioned to me prior to the interview about, you remembered Alex Hannon. Uh, 
And Alex Hannum was typical of the coaches in the ABA because he had coached in the NBA. So they just went back and forth. And Alex Hannum had coached the uh, Philadelphia basketball team with uh, Wilt Chamberlain when they won in 67, 68, when they won the NBA title and were thought to be the best basketball team of all time. So now he comes to the ABA and he's coaching the, uh, I believe it was the Oakland Oaks at the time. And he said that the ABA basketball, that red, white, and blue ball, belonged on the nose of a seal. So he's famous for that. George Mikan was the commissioner. And George Mikan had been one of the great giant players and one of the early big men who could play in the NBA. And he was the commissioner. He'd been a, he actually was running a, a um, travel agency at the same time in, in Minneapolis. He's, he was famous for uh, going to the inauguration of the Oakland Oaks franchise and said, it's great to be in Oklahoma tonight. So he was, uh, for a guy who's a travel agent, you'd think he would know the difference between Oakland, California, and the state of Oklahoma. But the ABA was full of stories like that, full of fun. What became of the ABA? Well, the ABA got so good and started recruiting and signing so many good players that they forced what they refused to call a merger, was sort of an absorption of four of its best teams. And that one team it did not get, which, which was one of the best teams in the ABA, was the Kentucky Colonels, who played in Louisville. And Dan Issel, even today, is trying to get a franchise. He was one of the stars of that team. He had been at the University of Kentucky, and then he was the star player for the ABA's uh, Kentucky Colonels. So it was a shame they lost that franchise. But the next year, in the NBA All-Star game, the 10 starters, five were from the ABA and five were from the NBA. And the team that won the championship was the Portland Trailblazers, led by Bill Walton, and the power forward on that team was Maurice Lucas, who had finished up with the ABA's team in St. Louis, which I believe to this day is the best nickname of any team in pro basketball, the Spirits of St. Louis. And boy, they, they had some crazy spirits on that team. They had Moses Malone and Fly Williams and Gus Gerard, and they had uh, Maurice Lucas. They, did, they had a bunch of uh, real loony characters on that team, but they were talented individuals. They could play. Why didn't St. Louis and Kentucky go into the NBA? Well, Kentucky was owned by John Y. Bryan, who owned uh, KFC. And uh, he did strange things. I mean, he divorced Ellie Bryan, who was a wonderful woman, good-looking woman, in favor of Phyllis George. That was one of his first bad moves. And then he took $3.2 million from the NBA teams for his franchise. And he ended up later owning teams in Buffalo and Boston. But uh, he, had the, he had a great team and a great following. It was one that and the Indiana Pacers were probably the two most solid franchises in the league. And the Utah Stars drew well, too, and they played in a first-class facility. And the thing that was great about covering the ABA was that the owners, the coaches, and the players, they, were, they, they wanted attention. They needed publicity. And thus, the door was always open and they, they coveted the attention of sports writers. So for me, it was great because uh, uh, they, they trusted me. 
I was at the time, I was editing Street and Smith's basketball magazine, which was the number one selling basketball annual. I was editing the Complete Handbook of Pro Basketball, which had the most information of any magazine on the subject. I was writing for the New York Post. I was writing a column in every week in the Sporting News, which was a national publication. I was writing for Basketball Times, the Basketball uh, Digest. I have a friend who's in the uh, collection collector's business, and a couple years ago he told me, he says, every magazine and book I pick up, you're in there. <laughs> so I hustled, I hustled, but I, I never confused what I did with work. Did you, do you have a big collection of sports memorabilia? Not as much as you would think, but more than my wife would like. <laughs> I, I, uh, toward the end of my career, I started getting people to sign pictures that I had. And uh, I have an ABA basketball uh, that's never been used, and it's in the box that it came in, a Rawlings box, and signed by Commissioner Jack Dolph. And it's worth about uh, $2,500, according to eBay and so forth. I have that. I have some things that uh, press guides and pictures. And most of all, I have memories. And that's a strange thing in, in doing this book. I was writing about things that happened 50 years ago. The ABA was founded 50 years ago. And even before that, some of the incidents were 60 years ago. And I was writing it, and I had a vision of the scene where I was interviewing somebody or talking to someone. It was so vivid, I could remember the conversations. I never used uh, tape recorders. I listened. We had a conversation just like you and I are having a conversation. And I didn't want to be a stenographer. So I listened. And it pays off even today because if I lose my notes, and I do that more often than I used to, I can still write the story because I remember what they said because I was listening. And if you listen, you know the next question to ask because maybe they don't give you the full story or they don't touch on something that you want to get at. And the only way you're going to succeed in doing that is to listen. You uh, write in here, one of my self-imposed rules as a journalist was that I would never quote anybody who had a drink in his or her hand when I was talking to them. That served me well. Uh, one of the people that I actually was a ghostwriter for, Jimmy the Greek Snyder, when he got in trouble with that remark that he made about black athletes having uh, uh, superior uh, bones even, and superior athletic skills, got him into so much trouble, got him fired from his television gig. That was a shame because of two things. First of all, if he had been an anthropologist, they would have said, wow, you know, he, he really is making a point here. But he was an odds maker from Las Vegas, so it didn't play too well. But he was drinking at... Uh, at, uh, what the, I'm trying to think of the fellow's last name. Duke was his first name, who owned a famous uh, celebrity-type bar. Duke Siebert? Duke Siebert, in, thank you, in Washington, D.C. And the, the uh, television interviewer really wasn't seeking uh, a story that would get somebody into trouble. It was around the time of, of the Martin Luther King's birthday, and he was simply looking for some responses about what that meant in pro sports, but uh, it cost Jimmy the Greek Snyder his job. And I'll tell you something else. I just read a story the other day in the Pittsburgh newspaper in which the writer 
quoted a college football player sounding like an idiot. Bad grammar. He's probably a communications major because that's what all the basketball players are communication majors. But I never thought, and I still don't feel, that, that I'm covering Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. So if I'm quoting somebody and they make a grammatical error or something, I'm not going to punish them for that, unless I want to punish them for that. Most of the time I don't. But unless you're trying to make the person look bad, I just cleaned it up. And I also, as a writer, it, writers who use quotations, if you introduce a quotation properly, you don't have to have parenthetical expressions throughout the quote explaining when you said he or she who you were talking about. If you introduced the quote with that person's name in it and said that Joe Blow said, you wouldn't have to do that. So I find that to be, uh, it, it just fouls up the writing and it makes it difficult and clumsy. And one of the things in which I take a great deal of pride as a writer is I just got a letter the other day to this effect. Somebody said to me, I feel like you're taking me with you and that I'm there interviewing or sitting and listening to the conversation and that you're my best friend. How'd you learn to write like that? I don't know. I don't know. I do a lot of public speaking and I have to think. There are certain words, for instance, I'll give you an example as a Pittsburgher. The word going. In my mind, it starts out as going, going downtown. No matter how much I try, I can't say downtown without revealing that I'm from Pittsburgh. But I can say going. And I can say Washington instead of Washington. But it, it starts out in the brain in that wrong form. And I always tell people that all these teachers I had in my lifetime, they're in my head like they would be at uh, the haunted house at Kennywood Park or something like that, and they're whispering to me, Jimmy, say going, and pronounce this word. I had a teacher who helped me a lot named Lois Josephs in the 11th grade. She was an English teacher. And she said to me, she used to give me cards, index cards, correcting grammar. This afternoon, for instance, I heard someone say, uh, where are you at? And when I hear that, I holler out in the background, Pittsburgh, where else? And the thing is, is that she said to me, Jimmy, you will always be known by the way you speak and the company you keep. And I think in my books, I'm keeping good company. That's what it's about, these people that I spend time with, what they had to say, what did I learn from it? Because I also think of myself as a teacher, and I, and I like to bring uh, athletes into my books that actually can, are worth emulating. They have something to say. Over the years, who were some really tough interviews? Either people who would not let you interview <laughs> them or people who just gave you a hard time? Well, there's a story in the book about the, the worst night in basketball. I was in Louisville, and I was interviewing Dan Issel after a game. And I'm talking to him, and all of a sudden, I'm blind. I cannot see. And I had no idea what had happened. And here what happened was someone jammed a cream pie in my face. I didn't see them coming. And Dan Issel, I was so embarrassed. I couldn't see for a while. And then I 
he handed me his towel, his white towel. I could still see him, not seeing him do it, but after I started wiping my face off, I could see what I had. So as a result, Dan Issel is in my all-time Hall of Fame because he came to the rescue when I was in trouble. But I wiped that off my face. I felt like I didn't want to, the last thing in the world I wanted to do was write that night. I went across the way to the Executive Inn Hotel, one of my favorites on the road. I had a big press pass here saying, New York Post. And I walk into this hotel in Louisville, and this old man with a cane sees that. He says, you New York writers, you ruined things for the University of Kentucky with those scandal stories. I said, I wasn't even in New York when that happened. Leave me alone. I'm having a tough enough night. And I went to my room, and I remembered something that Dick Young, the great baseball writer of the New York Daily News, had told me once. He said, the readers don't care about your problems. You got a story to write, so you got to do it. So who were the people who wouldn't talk to you? Or, or uh, I wanted just to interview one-word uh, answers. I wanted to interview Cordell Stewart once, the quarterback of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I wasn't covering the team at the time. I was writing books. And I went up to him and I said, uh, Cordell, I'm Jim O'Brien. I write books about the Steelers. I'd like to talk to you. He said, don't you know the rules? I'm dumbfounded. I'd say, the rules? What do, you, what do you mean the rules? I'm looking for my cards or something like that. And he says, I only do interviews on Wednesday. I said, oh, I, you know, I, I reach in, I get a pen, and I said, that's a good quote. You know, unlike those ads on television, which are so terrible about the bad quotes. I said, that's a good quote. I never do interviews on Wednesday. Cordell Stewart. I said, you know, Cordell, no one on the Steelers has ever given me that quote. Joe Green never gave me that quote. Terry Bradshaw never gave me that quote. Franco Harris never gave me that quote. Julius Irving never gave me that quote. Muhammad Ali never gave me that quote. And with that, the equipment manager, Tony Parisi, seized me, and in sort of a mock acting deal, he grabbed me away from Cordell Stewart, and he said, for God's sake, Jim, leave him alone. Besides, he doesn't know who you're talking about. <laughs> so that was my uh, another fellow that, that uh, wouldn't do an interview, but he wasn't doing interviews with anybody. Was um, oh, he was a baseball player, Johnson, Alex Johnson, and his brother was Ron Johnson, who played football for the New York Giants, and he was wonderful. He couldn't have been nicer, but his brother was such a jerk, because. If you're nice to writers, they'll be nice to you. It's that simple. Uh, as a writer, you're reluctant to ruin a working relationship. And I always find that if they trusted you, if they knew you were not to bury them, you would get better stories. You would get more cooperation. That doesn't mean that sometimes you're not compelled to write something that perhaps is negative the performance, you know, like one of my good friends in college once said to me, if there's a hero in victory, there's a goat in defeat. But I don't look for those stories. I, I tried to be a positive writer. He wanted me to be a positive writer. When I was in college, he gave me a book by Grantland Rice called The Tumult and the Shouting. And it was, Rice was regarded as one of the great sports writers of all time. And he's the one that wrote about the, the, the four horsemen, wrote again and so forth about Notre Dame. And Grantland Rice 
would play golf and cards and everything else with the likes of Ty Cobb and Jim Thorpe and all these wonderful athletes. And I believe that in the long run, he was privy to more stories because he was with them and they weren't afraid of him. And when I was covering sports, you traveled with the teams, baseball, football, basketball. You were on the bus. You were on the plane. They don't do that now? They don't do that now. And the thing about it is you'd get to see if somebody was injured. You'd get to see their personality at work. But, again, someone told me once again, it was Dick Young, you're a guest. When you're on the bus, you're a guest of the team. When you're on the plane, you're a guest. So you have to use some journalistic judgment about what you choose to write about. And if they're having fun and you, and you can see that there's a special spirit or a special relationship between two players or a coach, you could write about that. If you see two guys on the bus arguing, fighting about something, you're best to ignore it. And uh, I, uh, I also believe one of the things that I'm good at, even today, is I did a book a couple years ago where I, we had six Hall of Fame quarterbacks from Western Pennsylvania within a 60-mile radius of the city of Pittsburgh. And they all were, uh, none of them played for the Steelers. And I had to call and interview them all on the phone. And I had been at the Hall of Fame when they got in. They were all heroes of mine as a Pittsburgher. And when I called Joe Namath, for instance, I had interviewed him in New York several times because he was from Western Pennsylvania. But when I called him, I didn't know if he remembered me or not. But I said, Joe, how about if we don't do an interview? How about if we just talk? And he said, that sounds good to me. And at the end of the conversation, he, he stayed on about a half hour longer than he had promised. At the end, I said, Joe, with all that you've told me now, what's the bottom line? What's, what's the, the thing that I don't know about you? And Joe Namath, Broadway Joe, the fur coats, the alpaca carpeting and so forth, he says to me, I worry about being alone. I worry about being alone. He had about five or six dogs at the time that ran the backyard. His daughters were always bringing home dogs to him and so forth. And he was a loving father, and he, he had made some mistakes. He'd been drinking too much and so forth. He got, him, he got himself in trouble for drinking too much on national television. But Joe Namath comes back to Western Pennsylvania all the time, and he's wonderful with people, and he poses for pictures with everybody. He won't sign autographs because it ties him up, but he, he lends his presence to fundraisers here and so forth, and he's a, he's a good guy. There's a lot I want to ask you about, and we, we don't have an unlimited amount of time, but I do want to ask about this. This is your previous book, From A to Z, that you refer to a boxing memoir, From Ali to Zivic. And I have to ask you about this photograph. There's a photograph in this book of Oscar Bonavena landing a solid right-hand punch to the throat of Muhammad Ali, December 7th, 1970, at Madison Square Garden. And there is Oscar Bonavena on Muhammad Ali. And right over his shoulder is you. Right. There's a guy who looks like Pancho Villa. <laughs> so, How uh, often did you find yourself at ringside at fights like I Muhammad was at Ali? ringside for Ali Frazier, the greatest fight of the century. Which one is that? That was the first one at Madison Square Garden. And um, I was the youngest. I was 29 years old at the time. Uh, when that fight was over, my stomach hurt. It really did. And that happens sometimes in fights because 
you were so close to people punching each other repeatedly in the stomach. Or, uh, and finally, it would. Be, I was in uh, Detroit once when Joe Frazier and Bob Foster fought, and I was sitting at ringside. And uh, a woman was working a Western Union machine, and of course that dates me too because that doesn't happen anymore. And Bob Foster got smashed by uh, Frazier in the, in the nose, and blood flew out of his nose onto her machine, and she simply passed out on the floor. And what I remember doing at that particular fight was we had these old-fashioned typewriters, clickety-clack, clickety-clack, and everything else. And I was sitting near Dave Brady, who was an older, and there actually were times when there were older sports writers than I am. And he was there in front of me for the Washington Post, and his typewriter jammed up. The ribbon came bouncing out of it and everything else. So he's on deadline. He writes for a morning newspaper. So I handed him my typewriter. I took his typewriter. I worked for an afternoon newspaper. I could write into the middle of the night. And I fixed, I fixed this typewriter. It was a, the ribbon was off the reel. And all I know is that Dave Brady looked after me from then on. One of the things that I did quite often in those days is I sought the company of the old sports writers, the great sports writers. I didn't hang out with the guys from Pittsburgh because I couldn't learn anything from anybody. The, it wasn't that they weren't good writers. It was I couldn't get something different, a different view. So I would sit around with Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times, Furman Bisher of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, Red Smith from the New York Herald Tribune. I could name 20-some sports writers, and I would take them to lunch sometimes. I just wanted to get something from them. I wanted to be a really good sports writer, and uh, I enjoyed listening to them and getting their stories. I did a book on Art Rooney called The Chief, and I called my wife from the headquarters uh, down in Orlando, Florida, and I told her, I said, I've been interviewing a lot of writers, and I said, boy, they've given me some good stories about Art Rooney. And then I went, duh. <laughs> it was like, yes, they're writers. They know a good story when they see it and, and when they tell it to you. Art Rooney was a boxer. Art Rooney was a boxer. A lot of people in Pittsburgh were boxers, and Muhammad Ali s actually sought out a couple of writers, including myself, the night of the Ali Frazier fight. I mean, that doesn't happen at the Super Bowl. Bradshaw doesn't call you up to his room on the eve of a big fight. And uh, where I was sitting in Madison Square Garden, first of all, the ringside seats were $100. Today, those seats would go for a minimum of $25,000 a seat, and they'd get it. Sitting around me were Frank Sinatra, Burt Lancaster, Lorne Green, um, Jack Kent Cook, who owned the Lakers and the Kings in, in hockey, um, Darrow F. Zanuck, the movie producer, Diana Ross was sitting there where my wife Kathy was sitting, uh, and uh, we had four seats, our newspaper, four seats, just like we did at the Knicks games. We had four seats. That would never happen again today either because they would give them to TV and network coverage, and, and there's so much of that now. In those days, the team's PR people favored the beat writers, and that's different. Were you ever starstruck? I, uh, that's a good question. I, when I was covering in the Knicks, for instance, I met Robert Redford. I met Dustin Hoffman. Uh, when I would be, go into a hotel and I would see someone, and I did this, such as uh, 
Dan Rather or Red Skelton or Jackie Gleason or Woody Allen, I would go up to them and introduce myself and tell them that I was uh, an admirer of their work. I didn't say I was a fan. I didn't ask for autographs. But I wanted to meet them. Did you tell him you were a sports writer? Yes. I, in fact, Dan Rather said, I've read you. I've read you in the post because he was, was in New York City. And uh, let's put it this way. I'm, I probably was starstruck when I saw Wilt Chamberlain because he'd been this boyhood hero of mine, and he was seven feet two, and he had a wonderful mellow, I mean, he had a wonderful radio-rich voice. Uh, and he was a kid who in high school had stuttered when he was at Overbrook High in Philadelphia. And uh, now he wore blouses, I remember that. He had a white blouse, like Earl Flynn in a swashbuckling movie or something like that, and he told stories. And I was always mesmerized by people who told stories. I was always eager to listen. And I'm 75, as I told you earlier, and every day I still get up hoping to find a story. And I just recently had, an, uh, had uh, Rocky Blyer to a luncheon group of mine, and I didn't take notes during the luncheon because I was too busy emceeing it, just as you are now. And I got home that night, and all during the night when I was supposed to be sleeping, I was thinking about what he said, what he did, how it went. And I got up this, the next morning in my skivvies and went downstairs and didn't uh, bother to get washed yet or brush my teeth or anything else, take my pills. I went right to the typewriter. And Myron Cope, who was a big shot here in Pittsburgh, covering the Steelers and so forth, and somebody that said to me when I was 14, I said, Mr. Cope, what do I have to do to become a writer? And he said, can't you got to sit down and start writing? It's the best advice I ever got. And the thing is, is that Myron always took great pride in being a journalist, in writing well, and getting his grammar correct, and I like to do that as well. And, and like I said, starstruck, I'm sure that in some respect, but I didn't bow or genuflect to athletes, but I respected their skills and what they did. With the time we have left, and we only have a couple minutes left, I just want to throw out a couple names who are people in your book and get you to talk about them. One, right at the beginning of the book, John Brisker of the Pittsburgh Condors of the ABA. Well, John Brisker, I put a lot of stories up front about him and Simi Hill because they were characters and they had fascinating stories. And John Brisker was a tough player. When he was at the University of Toledo, he was not only a good player, he played with Steve Mix, who played in the NBA. And he was on the football team, he was a tight end. And he also, when he was a football player, he played in the band at halftime. Now, who does that? And, but he was a tough guy, and he was in fights a lot. So people thought that he believed that the ABA stood for the American Boxing Association because he was always in fights with, with people. One of his teammates was Art Heyman, and Art used to annoy a lot of people. Oh, you said uh, pretty much everybody on the team yeah. wanted to punch him. Right. And, uh, you know, Brisker had a gun with him from time to time. He was from uh, inner city of Detroit. There's a funny story. Reggie Harding, seven feet, one inches tall from Detroit. He went right from high school into the pros. And he never had a formal education. I'm not sure he had an education at all. I don't think he could read. And after he was done playing basketball, he, he played in the NBA and the ABA, he robs a liquor store in his own neighborhood. And he has a silk stocking pulled over his head. And he's in a liquor store about a block from his home. 
and he says to the guy, I'm Rob, I'm, I, give me your money. And the guy says, I know it's you, Reggie. I mean, who wouldn't know a seven-foot-one guy just because they had a stocking on his head? And Reggie said, it ain't me. <laughs> it ain't me. So, and Reggie later, one day some guy pulled a gun on him in Detroit. And Reggie said, go ahead, shoot me. And the guy obliged him. No more Reggie Harding. Well, and you say John Brisker was... Oh, he oh, was killed in Uganda. In Uganda, he was a mercenary e. soldier. He was, yeah, he was a mercenary soldier. Everybody doesn't know exactly what happened, but let's just say he disappeared under uh, questionable circumstances. But what was he doing over there in the first place? He was looking for another battle. Another uh, another fellow is Dick Grote. Yeah, Dick Grote is um, is a hero in Pittsburgh for many reasons. He was the shortstop and uh, he was the uh, leading batter, uh, batting average-wise, in the 1960 season, and the Pirates beat the Yankees, the mighty Yankees, who were a much better baseball team in the 1960 World Series. But Dick Rode always thought he was a better basketball player, and he is, was the college player of the year at uh, Duke University. His jersey was the first jersey retired by Duke University. Uh, when he goes back to the Duke campus, he's a big man, and he's also celebrated quite a bit in New York City. I think sometimes they take him for granted here in Pittsburgh. But he played for the Fort Wayne Pistons, and they used to, he was still completing his college studies. And the owner of the uh, Fort Wayne Pistons was Fred Zollner, who owned a company that built pistons for automobiles in Detroit. So he played both professional baseball and, yes. and basketball? Yes. He averaged about 10 points a game in the pros. And guys like Red Holzman and Red Arback told me that he was just as good as uh, – wasn't as good as Bob Cousy, but just as good, say, as Dick McGuire and would have been a really outstanding basketball player. Now he, for some 30-some years, he's been the analyst to Bill Hillgrove's play-by-play uh, -play of the pit basketball team. Another, uh, another player you have in here who's not a household name, Billy Melchioni. Billy Melchioni, someone just told me that he has a nice home in Florida, and they said uh, that... Uh, he must have saved his money. It wasn't, they didn't make money. He was a broker. He was a stockbroker while he was still playing for the New York Nets. He was the only guy on the team who I always saw reading a thick book, a real book, on the planes. And uh, he was a bright guy from Villanova University. He had played in the NBA prior to that. But he was a bright guy. And he, he was the playmaker for first Rick Barry and then Julius Irving, two of the finest forwards ever to play basketball. And you say um, Julius Irving may have been my favorite basketball player to deal with and write about. Well, he introduced me one time. I said, I see this woman in the end zone who makes such a fuss when you do something. Who is that? He said, it's my mom. And he said, you have to meet her. You like her. Well, the basketball players don't talk that way. I mean, you just don't, they don't introduce their wives. They don't recognize their own families most of the time. It's them. It's about me. But Julius Serving wasn't like that. Now, he also, he also mess, messed up some things late in his career and so forth. But I'll tell you something he did. I was in the locker room with my daughter, who's, who was uh, Sarah, and she's in the locker room with me, and I'm interviewing Brian Taylor from Princeton. And Julius comes by, and he goes over to the soda machine. They had the ice, they had bottles of, of uh, soda pop in the ice machine. He pulls out an orange drink, takes off the cap, and hands it to my daughter. Doesn't say a word to me, just hands it to my daughter, who was about 
uh, seven years old at the time, maybe six, and was back to his locker. So years later, I mean, my daughter loved him after that. And I see him at a golf tournament in Pittsburgh, a celebrity golf tournament. I walked up and he gave me a big hug, which mystified the local writers. But that's the kind of relationship we had. We had experienced something together. And I had a notebook with me. I always have a notebook with me. And I handed it to him and I said, do me a favor. My daughter is now in medical school at the University of Pittsburgh. I said, would you put a little note in there for her? And it says, dear Sarah, I hear you want to be a doctor like me. <laughs> Best wishes, <laughs> Julius Dr. J. Irving. And uh, he, was, he, he was always available, just like the ABA, Julius was always available. And when I went to NBA All-Star Games after he was done playing and he'd see me, he'd say, stay here, stay here. I want you to see, and he'd bring out one of his kids to, for me to see how much they'd grown since the last time and so forth. One of the characters on the Nets was a teammate of Dr. J, Wendell Ladner, from Case Crossing, Mississippi. Uh, his coach, uh, Babe McCarthy, once said that he didn't know the meaning of the word fear. He, he fought with John Brisker from time to time. He didn't know the meaning of the word fear, as well as a few other words. And Wendell, when I was leaving at the end of a season, uh, saying goodbye to the players, I got out in the hallway and rec realized I had not said goodbye to Wendell Ladner. So I went back in the locker room and I went over to him and I said, Wendell, I said, I'll see you next year. And I shake his hand. And he said, you won't be seeing me around here. And he meant that he wouldn't be back with the Nets. He didn't think that was going to happen. About a week or so later, he was killed in an airplane crash coming out of Kennedy Airport in New York City. His last words to me, you won't see me around here next year. You don't forget those things. How much time do you spend writing now? I get up, I'd say, about three days a week at least. When I'm, when I'm closing in on the books, I do it every day. But I, I get up bright and early and uh, sit down at the, at the uh, computer. And I'm not one to sit there like this. I don't sit there. I don't have writer's block. I don't, I don't worry about the next word. I simply start writing, and uh, I had a, uh, a writer in New York, Milton Gross, who was a columnist for the New York Post, and he said, if it don't write easy, it don't read easy. That's going to have to be the last word. I have a feeling you could tell stories all day long, but we are out of time. We've been <laughs> speaking to Jim O'Brien. He is the author of this, his latest book, Looking Up from the ABA to the NBA the WNBA to the NCAA. Thank you very much, Jim O'Brien. Thank you, Brian. You've been very, very, very generous with me through the years. And you're right. My wife would tell you, I don't run out of stories. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.